Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for the privilege of singing those words, hallelujah, what, is, what a Savior. We are so thankful for Christ. We are so thankful for his life, his death, and his resurrection. We are so thankful that he is an all-sufficient Savior, that not one drop of his blood was spilled in vain or wasted, that when he went to the cross to ransom the people whom you chose before the foundation of the world, to purchase them, that he did that. Lord, and we are those people, those who are in Christ, those who have repented from their sins and placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. His blood was spilled for us. So we do indeed cry out, hallelujah, what a Savior. And we thank you that our Savior did not stay dead, but Lord Jesus, that you are risen and that you are coming again and that one day we will be in your presence face to face for all of eternity. We're so thankful for that. We're so privileged to sing those words, to reflect on those truths, those realities, the glories of the Christian life. Lord, thank you for that. Be with us now as we turn to your word. I pray that you will fill us with your spirit. Help us to understand what is before us. Father, make us submissive and obedient to the truth. For the glory of Christ, in his name, amen. Well, it's good to see you guys. It's good to be almost on the, uh, you know, the beginning of summer. I know that many of you guys, um, probably all of you almost at this point, are done. You're back, maybe doing some summer classes, but, but it's good to, good to have you here, and, and uh, I'm excited about the summer as well. Hopefully you had a good time on Sunday night. And uh, you ate all that food, hopefully enjoyed it, hopefully you had a good time playing cornhole or learning cornhole or doing something remotely like cornhole by trying to throw something. I saw some of you. It was a good time. I had a great time with y'all. Tonight, I want to turn your attention to this topic, that a biblical church is an evangelistically driven church. A biblical church is an evangelistically driven church. You know, whenever I preach, and I would say this is true for pastors in general, we're, we're always excited to bring the word. We're, we're always grateful for the opportunity, and, and we are, you know, it's like game time for an athlete. That's, that's I know how I feel. That's I know how other guys feel. Some messages that we bring are, more difficult than others. There are difficult seasons in life, still, still ready to, to get in the game and to bring the word in those times. And then there's other times when there's messages that, that, that are just on the tip of your tongue that you're ready to explode with. That's where I'm at with this text. John 4. If you would turn with me to John 4. This is a great text. I'm going to try and get through it. It's 7.15-ish. I just keep that ish because... That's a helpful time for me. John 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 26. I want to turn our thoughts, like I said, to the reality that a biblical church is an evangelistically driven church. Every true New Testament church is a church that is committed to evangelism. It is committed to getting the gospel out to Every person. Charles Spurgeon didn't pull any punches when he said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. His point was that every person who has truly been granted mercy by God and forgiveness of sin has a message to tell to the world. As Americans, it seems that we have lost our urgency to declare this truth. We have settled in with our peaceful lives, and in doing so, we have lost the perspective that we are in a war. The prince of darkness and his wicked forces have waged war on the God of heaven and on his people, and the weapons that we have been given to fight this war are his word and specifically the gospel. 
But yet, we are content to go weeks or even months and sometimes years without proclaiming the truth of the gospel to any lost soul. We know that Satan is working nonstop to thwart the gospel message and at times does this very subtly. Concerning this, one author writes this. This is, this is an interesting perspective. I think it's helpful. He says, It is said that Satan once called to him the, the emissaries of hell and said that he wanted to send one of them to earth to aid women and men in the ruination of their souls. He asked which one would want to go. One creature came forward and said, I will go. Satan said, If I send you, what will you tell the children of men? He said, I will tell the children of men that there is no heaven. Satan said, they will not believe you. For there is a bit of heaven in every human heart. In the end, everyone knows that right and good must have the victory. You may not go. Then another came forward, darker and fouler than the first. Satan said, if I send you, what will you tell the children of men? He said, I will tell them that there is no hell. Satan looked at him and said, oh, no. They will not believe you, for in every human heart there is a thing called conscience, an inner voice, which testifies to the truth that not only will good be triumphant, but that evil will be defeated. You may not go. Then one last creature came forward, this one from the darkest place of all. Satan said to him, And if I send you, what will you say to women and men to aid them in the destruction of their souls? He said, I will tell them that there is no hurry. Satan said, go. Friends, we must regain our sense of urgency to declare to the people of this world that today is the day of salvation. It is my intention to spend tonight and Sunday morning thinking through this this concept of evangelism and to give you the opportunity to respond to this call by laying out a a practical approach that you can take to become a faithful evangelist. And I want us to turn, as I said, to a text that highlights a day in the life of our Lord there in John chapter 4. I'm going to read the text for us. I think that's always important to do. Even though it's a little bit longer, I'm going to read the text for us and then we're going to look at this. John 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and Who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way out here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five Husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I want to focus our thoughts on the divine yet practical method of Jesus as he evangelized the woman at the well. In fact, I want us to observe three strategic lessons that we learn from Jesus regarding his method of evangelism. And before we get into those practical lessons, however, I want to provide you with a little background that will be helpful for the remainder of our study. As you might already know, the Samaritans and the Jews hated one another. This intense hatred led to both groups having little or no dealings with with the other group. This was especially true for Jews. It is recorded that Jewish religious leaders would inconvenience themselves and walk around Samaria on their journeys to avoid any contact with the Samaritan people. One commentator notes that according to rabbis, to eat Bread with a Samaritan was like eating swine's flesh. The swine, or the pig, was the most unclean animal in the Jewish culture, and it was to be avoided. To eat swine was to desecrate oneself. It was to defile oneself. It was the worst of the worst. And that's how Jewish leaders viewed eating with Samaritans. This was an intense prejudice that went back a long way. In fact, the hatred goes back to the Assyrian invasion and the deportation of the northern tribes of Israel recorded in the book of 2 Kings. When the Assyrians departed these tribes, they replaced them with men from all over the empire who were polytheists. That means they worshipped many gods. These people then mixed their own gods with the worship of Jehovah. After time, they worshiped Jehovah alone, but, but on their own terms. For answer, the only, for example, the only sacred scripture they recognized was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They disregarded the Psalms and the prophets. Now, as the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity, this wrong way of doing things was a slap in their face. The Samaritans also refused to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, so they built a temple on Mount Gerizim, which was later burned by the Jews. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds, as mutts, so to speak, because of diverted worship practices. This friction and tension continued to worsen so that by New Testament times, this was a flat-out despite. They despised one another. This was widespread and this was universal. Samaritans and Jews absolutely hated one another. This background is what makes this story all the more incredible. Jesus, a Jew, engages a despised Samaritan woman who was then converted... And we didn't read this part in the text, but then goes and fearlessly declares the truth to her city to come hear Jesus, and many of them get converted. The climax of this passage is in verse 26, where we stopped, and I want to draw your attention there first, kind of in reverse order, but I want you to see the point, and then we'll draw out these lessons from the text. Look again at verse 26. Verse 25, the the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You'll notice in your versions of the Bible, especially the NAS, that he is italicized. It's not in the original manuscripts. This statement by Jesus is one of great significance. He says to the woman at the well, ego eimi in Greek, which is translated, I am. I am. This is the first occurrence 
of this statement by Jesus, declaring that he is the I am of the Old Testament. You hear the words I am and you think immediately of the burning bush, right? Moses kills an Egyptian. He flees to the desert. He lives there for a while. He's doing his own thing. He meets Jethro, meets a woman, Jethro's daughter, gets married. I forget her name. It's a weird name. It's, it's on a test I had to take one time. Zamora, Zamora, Zipporah, Z. It's a Z name. I know that. Anyways, he meets her. And then he has this encounter with the Lord. He's out herding sheep. And there's a bush. And the bush is on fire and it's not consumed. If, if you ever want to listen to this story described with a great voice, Shailen, Shailen has a song about this, where Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite authors, is the speaker, and he's talking about the bush, the bush that is not consumed. It's fantastic. You should listen to it. Anyways, the bush is not consumed, and he walks up to this bush. God starts speaking to him through this bush, and he says, who should I tell? He tells him, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and he says, who should I tell him sent me? He said, you tell him, I am sent you. I am sent you. This is the first time that Jesus has declared himself as the I am of the Old Testament. This this is absolutely astonishing because the first recorded declaration by Christ confirming his deity, that he is the promised Messiah, is to a despised, lowly Samaritan woman. This is... Jesus declaring, yes, salvation is of the Jews, but I came to be the Savior of the world. This is amazing. This is absolutely astonishing. With that the forefront of our minds, I want us to look at these strategic lessons that we can learn from Jesus that get us to the point of declaring that he is the great I am to those lost souls of our world. And I want you to see it very practically. I love how this text unfolds. The first lesson that we can learn from Jesus is this. It is to be mindfully intentional. To be mindfully intentional. Look at the first part of verse 4. It says, And he had to pass through Samaria, speaking of Jesus. We see here, that Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Judea to Galilee and that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. This was the most direct route. But more than that, this was an ordained meeting set by the Father. As he came into the region of Samaria to a place called Sakar, he was exhausted. The word wearied there in, uh, in verse 6 The word wearied there indicates that he is exhausted to the point of falling over. They had been traveling a long time. He was dog tired. And there he collapsed by a very significant landmark in the history of the Samaritans, Jacob's well. This was no doubt a place where Jesus might encounter the despised Samaritans, though noon was not the most common time to go to the well. It was too hot. Go in the morning, they would go at night. But notice the fact that even in his weariness, it didn't stop Jesus from carrying out that which he intended to do. He was very intentional in the place that he chose to sit and at the time of day that it was. It says in verse 8 that he he was there alone because his disciples had gone away to buy food. He set himself up in a place where he would encounter unbelievers and he removed the distraction. There's a tremendous lesson for us to learn here. When we think about evangelism, it is important for us to think about setting our minds, being intentional about placing ourselves in a place where we are going to encounter unbelievers where we are going to be able to have gospel opportunities. Different ministries I've been a part of over the years have 
had different outlets for this. Our church has different outlets for this about placing yourself in an, in an intentional place where you know unbelievers are going to be so that you are setting yourself up for a gospel opportunity. Bus stations, malls, McDonald's. Also, McDonald's is awesome. It's beside the point. Placing yourself in a place where unbelievers are going to be. Verse 7 continues on with their encounter. He says that there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. She came alone. We find out as the story goes on why she came alone, probably. She was despised even among her own people. She was uh, an adulteress. And she was looked down upon. And so there was a Probably the reason she was coming at noon is so she wouldn't have to come to the well with all the other ladies, with all the other people who would draw. Jesus there in verse 7, he asked her for a drink. This had to shock her because a Jewish spiritual leader never engaged a, a Samaritan woman. This just did not happen. But see that he initiated the conversation with her despite the history of hatred Despite who she was, that didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus knew no prejudice. He, he didn't know racism. His mind was set on revealing himself to this woman. Our minds must be set on revealing Jesus. Not on our feelings, not on our fears, not on our prejudice, which we do have at times. This challenges us. This challenges us to step outside of our comfort zones, those zones in which the people we like and hang out with operate, to step out to have those kinds of conversations with people that we probably wouldn't otherwise be spending time with. We have to put aside our feelings. We have to put aside our our fears, we have to put aside our prejudices if we are going to evangelize like Jesus. He knew none of those things. Look at the woman's response in verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? She noticed his intentionality and she knew the cultural boundaries. She was aware of the dissension that, that exists, existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. In fact, her response was quite possibly a sarcastic response. That could have ended the discussion right there. She stirred up controversy by, by calling Jesus out for crossing cultural boundaries, which is another thing that didn't happen. Samaritan woman did not call out Jewish leaders. This begs the question, how often do we cower at the first sign of controversy in our evangelistic opportunities? Maybe someone asks a question that we don't know how to answer. And they're doing it to try and trip us up. You've been in a conversation with a person and they ask you a question because they're pretty uncomfortable <laughs> that you're going to talk to them about Jesus. They don't want to have that conversation. So they're going to conjure up that question that maybe they've heard in the past, maybe they've thought about, about the Bible, that, that is a really hard thing to answer, and, and they're going to ask you that question because they want to get off topic. Or maybe they're going to start just calling Christians hypocrites, which is kind of the trump card, right? When, when you're talking to somebody, like, oh, I, I don't want to have this conversation. I, all Christians are hypocrites. You know, they say one thing, they say they believe this, and, and then I just see how they operate. I see how they live. Controversy begins to swell, and, and we see that as our way out. Right? That's, that's it's in those moments, oh, okay. Yeah, looks, like, looks like the door is shut. The window was open, but, the, but now it's shut. I did my part. I'm going to move on. Not Jesus. Jesus was mindfully intentional. 
What about you? Are you looking for opportunities to evangelize? Are you being intentional in how you think about the reality that you are an ambassador for Jesus Christ put on this earth to share the gospel with unbelievers? Let me encourage you with that you can have an impact even with the smallest of opportunities. This, this story, I think some of you may know this, some of you may not. It's about Edward Kimball. It's a pretty incredible story, but it kind of paints this picture about taking advantage of even the smallest opportunities. Edward Kimball was concerned about one of his young Sunday school students who worked at a shoe store in town. One day, Kimball visited him at the store and found the student working in the back stocking shelves and led him to Christ then and there. Dwight L. Moody eventually left the shoe store to become one of the greatest preachers and evangelists of all time. Moody, who's in international speaking, took him to the British Isles, preached in a little chapel pastored by a young man with the imposing name of Frederick Brotherton Meyer. In his sermon, Moody told an emotionally charged story about a Sunday school teacher who personally went to every student in his class and led each of them to Christ. That message changed Pastor Meyer's ministry, inspiring him to become an evangelist like Moody. Over the years, Meyer came to America. While speaking in Northfield, Massachusetts, a young preacher heard Meyer say, if you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? That remark led J. Wilbur Chapman to respond to the call of God on his life. Chapman went on to become one of the most effective evangelists of his time. A volunteer by the name of Billy Sunday helped him set up his crusades and learned how to preach by watching Chapman. Sunday eventually took over Chapman's ministry, becoming one of the most dynamic evangelists of the 20th century. Billy Sunday's preaching brought thousands to Christ. Inspired by a 1924 Billy Sunday crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, a group of Christians dedicated themselves to reaching their city for Christ. The group invited the evangelist Mordecai Ham who, to come hold a series of evangelistic meetings in 1932. A lanky 16-year-old sat in the huge crowd one evening, spellbound by the message the white-haired preacher gave. Each evening, the preacher seemed to be shouting and waving his finger at the young man. Night after night, the teen came and finally went forward to give his life to Christ. That teenager was Billy Graham. Billy Graham has communicated the gospel to more people than any other person in history, and it all started with a Sunday school teacher named Kimball. Millions have been affected by his decision to go into a shoe store and share Christ with one person, and millions more will continue to feel his impact. Again, we don't share all of the same theological you know, things about the scriptures as, as uh, Billy Graham. We differ in some certain things, but that's an incredible legacy. It's an incredible thing to think about. God has chosen us, us, as the means to communicate the gospel so that he might save those whom he intended to save. So take advantage of the next opportunity instead of excusing it away. You never know how God's going to use it. There's a second strategic lesson we can learn from Jesus, and that is this. Be genuinely interested. Be genuinely interested. We see that in verses 10 through 15. Verse 10, Jesus goes from speaking generally to being, generally inter- to being uh, genuinely interested in this woman's soul. He begins to pursue her spiritual need. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who says to you, give me the drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The gift that Jesus is referring to is himself and the living water that he offers is eternal salvation. Living water is an Old Testament concept referring to the knowledge of God, referring to his grace, his spirit, the cleansing and the renewal of the soul, all of which are aspects of salvation. That's what's caught up in this term, living water. Jesus is saying to receive living water is to be saved. Well, notice how he meets her and where she is and how he turns the conversation to spiritual, to spiritual things. We see here that Jesus is the master teacher. He says, 
we see her response. It shows that she doesn't get it. So she says, Sir, I have nothing, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is very deep. Where then do you get this living water? She, she doesn't understand what's going on. She's focused on the physical situation that's at hand, but, but she is intrigued, and, and she is thinking, possibly still, what, still somewhat antagonistically. And she asks two questions there. <coughs> Excuse me. She asks two questions. One, how are you going to get this living water because the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with it? And second, are you greater than our father, than our father Jacob? The two questions she asks. She is probably taking offense that Jesus is saying that he is greater than Jacob. Jacob, for the Samaritans, was the most exalted ancestor. This was his well that he had given. This was the person that they held in in highest esteem. This was a, a sacred place that they were at. She may, she may have even deemed this well as holy and was somewhat mystical concerning it. This was a symbol of her religious experience. People don't want you to mess with their religious experience, even if it's wrong. Right? The lady who sees Jesus in the tortilla doesn't like when we tell her that that didn't happen. People don't like that. They don't like when we mess with their relics or their emblems or their sayings or their feelings. They are fascinated with those religious things rather than being fascinated with the person of Christ. They say, I'm comfortable with my stuff. I'm I'm comfortable with my religious practices. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel close to God. I don't want to be confronted by a person. I have this stuff. I have this experience. But notice that Jesus does not shy away. He is genuinely interested in her soul. And so he he patiently continues to guide her to the truth. Verse 13 and 14, Jesus answered and said to her again, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Here he makes a stunning contrast. He says, whoever drinks this physical water will thirst again. We understand that concept. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never, ever thirst again. It's the strongest negative in the Greek language. Whoever drinks of this water, this living water that I'm telling you about, he, he says, you will never thirst again. You will be completely and totally quenched. In other words, Jesus, Jesus' water is the ultimate satisfaction. Here he declares the exchange of the physical for the spiritual, the temporary for the eternal, the, the trivial for that which matters most. Jesus gives her the benefits of this living water, the reality that Jesus is all satisfying, and she needed to be spiritually satisfied. That was the point that he was making. She wanted to get caught up in the reality of somehow this physical water, and it probably was in some sort of mystical way that she had been thinking. Jesus turns that on its head and says, I am not talking about the physical. I am talking about the spiritual need of your soul. You need to be satisfied in Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, you're not in Christ. Jesus says the same thing to you tonight. You need to be satisfied in the all-sufficient Savior who is Jesus Christ. You need to come to him alone. You need to stop playing games with 
with your mystical feelings and, and with what you think brings you close to God and all of that kind of stuff. You need to abandon all of that and you need to come to Christ on his terms through repentance and faith and believe that he is the son of God, that he lived the perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death that was sufficient to save you and that he rose again three days later to prove that his sacrifice was accepted by the father. You need to turn to him. See, that's what Jesus is saying to this woman. Forget about the physical. Embrace the spiritual. And that's what he says to you tonight if you're not in Christ. To embrace Christ. Jesus is eternal life. Life in Jesus brings eternal life. Think of a well springing up, flowing over the top, forming a geyser. That's the... That's the picture that Jesus is giving her right here. He is telling her that he is the abundant life, that he is overflowing with immense satisfaction. Notice Jesus' excellent ability to use the physical experience as a metaphor for a spiritual reality. It's an amazing object lesson. As we picture that, you put your cup under the sink and you turn it on and it just keeps overflowing. You never pull it out and you waste all that water. That's that immense overflowing water. Jesus is saying that is a picture of who I am spiritually to those who embrace me. He is that satisfying. He is overflowing with the spiritual satisfaction that is necessary for us. There's a very important principle for us here that we can't miss. The evangelical culture as a whole is caught up in a felt needs evangelism. Come to Jesus and he will make your life better. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. As opposed to biblical evangelism, which says that God is holy that you are a helpless, depraved sinner in desperate need of forgiveness so that you can be reconciled to that holy God. Jesus isn't a genie ready to grant you your best life now by meeting your deepest felt needs. He is a savior ready to grant you satisfaction to your greatest spiritual need, which is forgiveness of your sin. At this point, we see that Jesus has masterfully exemplified this in verse 15. Because the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I won't have to come all the way out here to draw. She's still confused. But she's interested. He's got her attention. And so he is about to lower the boom, so to speak, and confront her in her sin, which leads us to the third lesson we need to learn from Jesus, and that is this, to be boldly intrusive. Be boldly intrusive. This is 16 through 26. It's clear by verse 15 that the woman is still focused on her physical needs, but here in verse 16, Jesus intrudes into her sinful lifestyle. She says, sir, give me the water so I will be, not be thirsty and Come all the way out here to have to draw. And Jesus says to her, go call your husband. Go call your husband. Often this is where we miss the boat when it comes to evangelism. So we've, we've talked about spiritual things. We've said some good things about Jesus. We've said some good things about God. We've, we've told him about our church. Told him about the cool things that happen there. We've, we've told him what the Christian life brings. Sometimes here we, we, miss the, we miss the boat. I love bass fishing. I haven't been in so many years, but I, I loved it. I would bass fish a lot, which I know shocks some of you to your cores. I don't like touching the bass, but bass are simple, right? You hook a bass, all you have to do is put your thumb on their tongue and they go paralyzed. So that disgusting little creature is not flopping around touching me everywhere. I can just hold him right here and then throw him back in the water. I love bass fishing, but there's a particular way you have to get a bass, right? And it's different from other fishing. 
So if you're out there and you see your line start to move, so you have it kind of tight and you see it start to, to wobble, you know that something's messing with that bait. If in that moment you refuse to set the hook, he's going to probably take the bait and he's going to mess with it. He's not going to get on your line. They don't just come and chomp on the hook. You have to get it. They're swirling around in their mouth and then you pop that rod and it causes the hook to set in their mouth and then you reel them in. That's what Jesus does here. That's what we do when we confront somebody in their sin. We're going from dabbling the bait out there. They're starting to get their mouth around it, just like this woman is, right? She's like, give me the water. Give me the water. I'm still super confused. She doesn't know that, but give me the water. And Jesus says, and hooks her. We converse with unbelievers. We talk religion with them. But we miss setting the hook by confronting their sin. Jesus doesn't miss that. We've been dangling the, the bait in front of them with our spiritual questions, but if, but if we are going to catch them for the glory of God, we must set the hook by boldly intruding into their sinful lifestyles. Notice the immediate excuse the woman gives, probably because of her guilt, and she's probably just shocked. She said, I have no husband. I have no husband. Her response is very common. The initial denial of the fact that she is bad enough to need a savior. Right, you're talking to somebody about the gospel. I just don't think I need that. I think I'm fine. My good is going to outweigh my bad. She's trying to shy away from the intrusion by changing the subject. She doesn't know what's about to happen. What's about to happen is going to completely revolutionize her life. And we encounter excuses like this. I've never murdered anyone. I've never cheated on my spouse. I'm basically a good person. I don't need this. But Jesus, in verse 18, the divine Son of God calls her out. He calls her sinful lifestyle to the table, and she can't deny it. He exposes her sin. He says, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one who you now live with is not your husband. Listen, we must expose the unbeliever's sin in such a way that they are brought to see it and they are brought to own it. Verse 19 is amazing. Her spiritual light bulb begins to flicker a little bit. She perceives that Jesus is a prophet. <laughs> you imagine, she, I just would love to have seen her face in that moment. And just that aha moment, like, whoa. What just happened here? This guy, this guy knows me, and that's pretty weird. Again, immediately, she turns the attention off of her sinful lifestyle to a religious debate. She doesn't want to go here. Obviously, this guy has just freaked her out. She, she doesn't want to go in this direction. And so immediately, she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and your people say that you in Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. She, she changes the subject. She pointed out that the Samaritans worship at Mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, because the Jews denied them the privilege of helping rebuild the temple after returning from exile in Babylon due to their polytheism. So they established this new place. And the Jews, they worshiped in Jerusalem. Their temple was there. She was doing whatever she could to get the spotlight off of her sin. Whatever religious knowledge she had, she's going to bring to the table right now. How often does this happen? You get to that point in a conversation, you begin to expose the sin of somebody. And they get uncomfortable and they begin to deter that conversation. They want to all of a sudden begin talking about, hey, what's the difference between the denominations? Like, you know, I have a buddy who's Methodist. I have a, I have a buddy, uh, buddy who's Pentecostal. I, what, talk to me about that a little bit. Or the different translations. I mean, how, how do we get our minds wrapped around that? You know, there's so many different translations. What about the experiences these people are saying they're having in other countries? And they just want to talk about all of those things. They're all important topics, yes, but they are peripheral to a gospel conversation. Those are not necessary for a gospel conversation. And Jesus shows us that. Notice his response in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. 
Here Jesus corrects her theology about worship, directing her to the point of this conversation. So her theology is not even right. He moves from the place of worship to the person who is to be worshipped. He moves from the peripheral to the focus, from the incidental to the central, from the external to the internal, from that which is secondary to that which is primary. He says, you worship what you do not know. You worship a false god because you reject the prophets and you mix foreign gods into your practice. The Jews were instructed concerning Yahweh and they anticipated the Messiah. They worship what they know. And salvation is of Jesus, meaning that the promised Messiah, or the salvation is of the Jews rather, meaning that the promised Messiah, the seed, would come from Jewish descent. That's what he says there in verse 22. Salvation is from the Jews. The Messiah is going to come from the Jewish descent. Well, he continues on in verse 23, further correcting her theology for the sole purpose of pointing pointing her to himself. Her mind didn't need to be occupied with places of worship. She didn't even know about all that. What she needed in this moment was salvation. She needed that living water that only Jesus could give her. And so Jesus explains to her that true worship is not answered by the where, but it's answered by the how. Just a quick word of application. We are not to occupy our evangelism opportunities with questions of church or religion or denomination or confessions or creeds. What people need is salvation. They need to know the one true God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23 says only believers can truly worship. As he says, but an hour is coming when neither worshipers will when, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God accepts those who worship in spirit. This is spiritual life granted by God who is spirit. This is not fleshly. This is not mystical worship. This is not merely emotional worship. This is not, uh, it's not fleshly in any way. It's not merely outward. It's not merely external. One definition that is helpful is worship is an action of the new nature seeking an act, an activity of a redeemed people which proceeds from the heart. So one must worship in spirit. That is with their new spiritual nature which has been granted from above, not the flesh. That's what Jesus is telling her. But, it's, but he, say, he doesn't stop there. He says, one must also worship in truth. That is according to the revelation of God through his recorded word. Res- uh, through Christ recorded in his word. The word truth here in verse 23 is not our truth. It's not our experience. It's not our feeling. It is the truth of the scriptures. There's nothing mystical about this statement. It's very objective God is not looking for a mere outward conformity. He doesn't care about that. He is looking for an inward transformation, and that can only take place from above. You remember John 3, just a chapter before. Nicodemus says, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? You must be born again. What? Go in my mother's womb and be born a second time? No, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. You need to understand this. You must be born from above. So Jesus is telling this woman that true worshipers worship in spirit. They are born of the spirit. And they are born of the truth. It's objective. This is our declaration as well, to truly worship God, which is what you were created to do. You must bow your knee to Christ. That's our declaration. That's our proclamation. Verse 25 tells us that this woman has been pointed in the right direction by a boldly intrusive divine messenger who had patiently guided her to the first and foremost priority of her life. And here she is in verse 25. She's basically saying, I want Christ. So the one's coming. I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will declare all things to us. He has brought her to the point of wanting Christ. 
And Jesus says to her, Ego in me. I am. I am He. I am that Christ. I love how one commentator summarizes this. <clears throat> it says, Jesus came to the fountain as a hunter. He threw a grain before one pigeon that he might catch the whole flock. At the beginning of the conversation, he did not make himself known to her. But first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, and last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed her dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. And she was swept off her feet by the prophet. And she adored the Christ. Jesus said, I am. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the living water. I am the all-satisfying one. I am the answer to your sin and your spiritual despondency. Friends, our only goal is to properly point believers to the great I am. It's an amazing story that's recorded here. Jesus, the great I am, instructing us and exemplifying for us strategic lessons for evangelism. I hope you are infused with, with spiritual excitement like this text does for me. And I hope you this week will find an unbeliever. I don't care who they are. And you will be mindfully intentional You will be genuinely interested and you will be boldly intrusive. We look at Jesus and we see an exhortation to go bait and hook a fish for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for our time. Thanks for this story. Thank you that it is absolutely true. Your word is inerrant, it is inspired, it is infallible. It is sufficient. Every word we read is true. Thank you for the great lessons we learn about Christ. There's so much to learn in this text, but Lord, thank you for just giving us the opportunity to take a fresh look at this text in terms of our responsibility to be an evangelistically driven church. God, please... Stir within our hearts a desire to see lost people come to Christ. Give us boldness. Lord, we, we come with so much fear and trepidation so many times. You're so gracious to us and kind to us and patient with us. Please embolden us to be these kinds of people, to be like Jesus. We're never going to be perfectly like Jesus. We're never going to reveal to somebody that we are the great I am but we have the mission to go point people to the great I am. So God, make us faithful in this task. We love you and praise you.